Hello. Hello. You're listening to A Little Birdie Told Me, a Winnie Wagtail podcast. I'm your host, Rosie Gundalak. I'm a mum of two and registered midwife. And throughout this series, I'll be speaking with experts in their fields. I'm asking the questions we're all wondering as we fumble and find our way through parenthood. This week's episode, Infertility and the Role of Nutrition. So today we're talking about infertility. It's an incredibly important, incredibly emotional, all-consuming, frustrating topic for some couples. Within our society, it's reported that around 20 to 30% of fertile women are battling infertility, and the World Health Organization reckons 80 million people worldwide are affected. For the purpose of today's conversation, we're defining infertility as actively trying to conceive naturally for one or more years, or if you're 35 and over, trying for six months or more and just not falling pregnant. We're also going to be specifically speaking about female fertility with some info thrown in for men. There are many factors to consider when trying for a baby and it just isn't happening. There's psychological factors such as your age, gynecological factors, lifestyle factors like whether you're a smoker, if you drink alcohol, if you're stressed and nutrition and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. So today's guest is Brittany Darling, a Sydney-based nutritionist, herbalist and mother of two. Brittany's a master juggler. She's currently completing her master's on human nutrition, running her own business, Whole Food Healing, a founder of a vitamin line and co-writing a book on plant-based pregnancy. I spoke to Brittany earlier. All right, so let's just jump straight in, Britt. So um, what does a nutritionist and a herbalist do? So um, I work with clients one-on-one um, and basically what I do is I look at their diet, uh, obviously, <laughs> and yeah. I run it through a dietary analysis software quite often and pick up uh, whether there's any micronutrient deficiencies or macronutrient deficiencies. Uh, I run bloods to see uh, things like vitamin D status and B12 and iron is one that I you know, usually always check, particularly in women and children, because um, okay. iron deficiency is pretty ripe. <laughs> um, yeah. And then basically we just optimise their diet uh, based on where they're at. So we make tiny changes, um, usually three things at a time is what I give people. I don't like to give them okay. too much to work with because I like it to be achievable and for people to feel like they're succeeding and kind of moving yeah. towards bigger goals. Um, if, if they have those bigger goals. Some people it's just literally tiny tweaks and a few supplements um, and, yeah, a few dietary changes. But, yeah, that's what I do as a nutritionist and herbalist. Oh, I didn't talk about herbs. Um, that's okay. <laughs> herbalist. <laughs> what does a herbalist do? Well, yeah. a herbalist basically does exactly the same thing, well, except for the dietary analysis. But really I don't pull out my herbal medicine hat very often. Um, I'll pull it out in a few instances particularly around uh, fertility, I'll use herbs. Um, mental health stuff I really like to use herbs for. So things like saffron's really great um, for anxiety and also postpartum depression. It's also a great herb for kids because of its okay. uh, really great safety profile and the fact that it's a, a culinary herb and it has such a long tradition of use. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't use herbal medicine very often but when I do it's yeah more for those specific um conditions that need extra support 
Okay, fabulous. So if someone was to come and present to your clinic, um, do you sort of cross the two like nutrition and herbs together if they want it or will someone come to you specifically for nutrition or specifically for herbs? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think people usually come to me for nutrition. That's my primary um, focus. But I do mm-hmm. sort of pull out the herbal medicines and, you know, I don't force them upon people. But if I yeah, if no. I really <laughs> think they could benefit from, from herbal medicines, they will either walk away with like a foul tasting liquid herbal tonic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm oh, no, kind of I'm known for <laughs> blending these horrible tasting things that are so effective though. Like I love my liquid herbs. And then for kids, yeah. there are um, better combinations that I use like powders and tablets, like chewable tablets and things that I give to kids to get herbs into them but yep, to sort of hide in a smoothie and things like that yeah yeah some of them hide in a smoothie I have actually developed my own product um that's going to be launching in July which is a children's Amazing. chewable that's a combination of both uh vitamins and minerals but also um herbal medicines as well but ultimately fabulous nutrition supports that internal biochemistry you know the internal workings the enzymes all of that kind of stuff and then herbal medicines um, have energetic properties but also have therapeutic um, constituents as well so it kind of they both work so well together to be honest so yeah yeah. very complementary yeah yeah absolutely how'd you get into all of this oh look I've always been interested in um, nutrition and naturopathy and all of that kind of stuff. Since I was really young, um, I had really bad IBS or irritable bowel syndrome um, yeah. as a teenager. And, you know, my mum took me to the gastroenterologist who couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So then we literally got out the yellow pages and looked up, you know, naturopath and found one around the corner. Mum took me to a And I just remember like all the tests that she did, everything she was doing, I was just like, wow, oh my God, this woman is like, God, she's amazing. I was so fascinated by everything she did Um, and her treatment worked. So I think that was kind of a pivotal point for me. And I would have only been 13 or 14 um, at that point, but I kind of knew that's what I wanted to do. And, And from that point, I was reading lots of books and, um, that was kind of my interest um, yeah, so I kind of knew from quite early on this is what I wanted to do, which I guess Amazing. is Amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's so lucky. It's so great to have direction early on rather than flailing about for a bit. That's great. <laughs> so you originally went into paediatric nutrition. Yes, And that's then right. sort of did a bit of a rejig of your nutrition path. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, I mean, for years I was pretty much only seeing pediatric um, clients. So either infants with colic or older kids with developmental disorders. I'd see some teenagers, particularly um, uh, teenage girls with period problems and all that kind of stuff. Um, And what I was finding, particularly with my younger patients, was I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, so much of this could have been prevented had, you know, the pregnancy... um, you know, being better managed or had we done three to six months preconception care and nutrient loading to prevent some of the things that I was seeing um, in my pediatric patients. So I was like, hang on a second, I'm going to take a step back. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I need to start seeing patients 
in preconception and focusing more on that and more on healthy pregnancies so then I don't have to see these kids with these conditions of childhood so you so know, what might like- you have been doing in um, preconception care and throughout pregnancy were you running bloods or working on sort of um, that flora um, in your gut what like what, yeah, were, you, what were you specifically so- working on so preconception care it consists of um, three, I break it down into three categories. So the first thing is diet. So mm-hmm. focusing on um, basically a micronutrient rich diet, so a nutrient dense diet, but also a balanced diet. And I, I really favor the Mediterranean style way of eating, particularly for fertility and also preconception care from a nutrient loading perspective. Okay. The other part of preconception care is environmental cleanup. So reducing your exposure to pesticides which does mean eating predominantly organic Um, and then also ditching all the crap beauty products that are filled full of phthalates and endocrine disruptors ditching the plastics like the bpa plastics which are real really um toxic in pregnancy but also can um alter fertility in both men and women so yeah doing an environmental cleanup getting rid of the heavy metals making sure the seafood that you're eating isn't completely contaminated with mercury, which is a known neurotoxin um, and has been linked to all sorts of developmental disorders like autism, um, pest, high pesticide uh, residues has been linked to things like ADHD. So, yeah, it really is about that environmental cleanup and then nutrient loading through supplementation. And we all kind of know about folic acid, that we're supposed to take our folic acid before pregnancy. Um, yeah. That's drilled into us. Yeah, everyone kind of knows that. But, you know, there's all these other micronutrients like iodine. So iodine deficiency in Australia is rife. So our soils are deplete. There aren't many good food sources of iodine. It's added to our water, isn't it? Is it added to our water? No, so that's that's fluoride. Yeah. Okay. Which it's interesting that you bring that up though. So... (laughs) <laughs> oh, hang on. You may have touched on a, one of my favourite subjects here. Yeah. So, so basically, yeah, there aren't many uh, uh, food-rich sources of iodine. Fluoride is added to our water. So for any chemistry nerds, I don't know how many of your listeners are chemistry nerds. <laughs> I'm a bit of a chemistry nerd. But if you think about the periodic table, basically everything that is in a, a vertical row together, which is fluoride and iodine, compete with each other for absorption. So fluoride does compete with iodine for absorption and it can inhibit the uptake of iodine in the thyroid. So I think, you know, fluoride in our water could be um, causing some of our iodine deficiencies. That's one of, okay. it's, you know, it's not very well documented in the literature. I'd, I'd have to file that under one of my conspiracy theories. Just Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. Look, you talking chemistry, all I can think of is breaking bads. <laughs> you basically <laughs> lost me. But I, 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 I get what you're saying. So you're saying yeah. that um, fluoride in our water could be potentially inhibiting our iodine absorption absolutely and causing some of the iodine deficiency that i'm seeing clinically so yeah back to micronutrients and nutrient loading so we know about folic acid iodine deficiency is rife in australia iodine is really important um, for the health of the mother's thyroid and also the baby's thyroid so like the baby in utero so technically the fetus so Mm -hmm. we What we do know is that lower um, intakes of iodine in pregnancy is correlated with lower IQ in the offspring. 
Wow. So, yeah, super important. And also things like choline. So having higher intakes of choline, which is sort of um, – Choline is, is making a, a, a sort of a comeback. A, like I had, oh, yeah. I had read about it at uni and then basically nobody has mentioned it. It was never mentioned in antenatal care or the antenatal care admittedly that I had given. Like it was just something that never really – got spoken about. And then I've just seen so much more crop up in studies and on even things like Instagram, like people are talking about it more. Someone actually yeah. had written in saying, um, I'd love to know more about choline um, as one of the questions that got put out um, on that questionnaire on Instagram yesterday. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's becoming more popular because there have been more studies published recently about it. So um, it's equally as important as folic acid in terms of neural tube defect uh, prevention. Um, Yeah, higher dosages of it in pregnancy have, um, the studies have come out that children by the time they're age seven have higher IQs and better cognitive function than their um, lower choline consuming uh, mothers. Yeah. Um, So yeah, so important. So important for methylation as well. I mean, a lot of people are starting to hear about the MTHFR gene mutation as well. And taking methylfolate is part of that um, to help, I guess, treat the um, methylation defect. But choline is also a really important part of that methylation cycle too. So there is some um, also hints in the literature as well. There's no definitive evidence at the moment, but it could potentially... um, uh, reduce the risk of having a child with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome as well. Wow. So, but that so can you get choline from food or is it only Look, um, you can. a supplement? Yeah, you can. Look, eggs are a really good source of choline. So is peanuts um, or peanut butter. Things like broccoli and cauliflower are, and chickpeas. There are food sources. But the thing is, the studies are saying that around 960 milligrams a day is the um, is the effective dose, basically. So, no diet really is going to get to that sort of no. that therapeutic level. You might be able to get to the adequate intake, which is the adequate intake's been set by um, uh, the NHMRC which the adequate intake is basically just their best guesstimate at how much yeah. we should be having, which they're saying is 400 micrograms. So what I'm really saying is double, if not you need you know, a lot. slightly more, yeah, yeah, than what the adequate is, yeah. Right, okay. That's really interesting. I wonder if, um, so are you saying that we should all be taking that preconception, like when you're trying for a baby, taking not only a folic acid but also taking choline, or are they combined in our prenatal yeah. vitamins? So I think it's really important to get a really good prenatal multi. Um, yep. They're not all created equally. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would, you know, I would get one that uh, has methylfolate in it. I would okay. also get one um, that has choline added. So some of the ones that I've seen that have the highest levels of choline are around 100 micrograms. And most of these you'd have to take two tablets a day. So boosting okay. yourself by 200, sorry, 200 milligrams. I said micrograms. I'm thinking about That's iodine okay. as well at the same time. Um, by boosting your levels to by 200 milligrams a day of choline is 
you know, is beneficial. It's definitely going to help to boost your levels. But I am giving women an additional DHA and choline supplement on top of their prenatal multi as well in clinic. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. And I guess DHA is another really important um, nutrient, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later. (laughs) Yeah. So today... Ideally, I had just wanted to chat about sort of infertility and trying for a baby and if it's just not happening. Um, I know yesterday we spoke briefly and you had said that you weren't a huge fan of the um, sort of defining it as infertility and rather talking about subfertility, which I actually hadn't heard anyone um, speak about subfertility before. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I don't think subfertility is like an official term, but it's kind of something I've come up no, with. No, I like it. I... It sounds less negative and <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And it, it kind of alludes to the fact that, you know, it's reversible and there's things that can be done. So reasons for subfertility that I quite often see in clinic are things like PCOS or endometriosis, stress, hypothyroidism is a big one. I see a lot of thyroid abnormalities in clinic. Um, Mm -hmm. that can cause both subfertility but also recurrent pregnancy loss. Yep. So I'm really big on thyroid testing quite extensively coupled with checking um, people's iodine status and that's just a really simple urine test. Yeah. But other things like toxins and nutrient deficiencies and infections um, can also cause subfertility. And also knowing that the man plays 50% of the role in yeah, and we don't speak nearly enough about male fertility. Yeah, and it's a lot of I, women think and carry that burden, but really, you know, it does take two to tango. So it's it very certainly does, and it does mm. take a lot of effort for women to bring their partners into the clinic. Like I do observe that, and they're kind of really not on board, which is a shame. But that's obviously not all men. Um, no, but there's nothing. Uh, that hits home more than just doing a simple semen analysis. Yeah. And when they see those results of their their swimmers, their men, you know, yeah. and they've got DNA fragmentation or they've got motility issues or whatever it is, that's when they really get motivated um, to make yeah. some dietary and lifestyle changes. And supplements can reverse male or seem, it can boost semen health in in less than 90 days like it's really it's it's much easier to treat the man than it is the woman so if I can see the men I would rather see the men because if that is the actual problem it's so much easier to treat it's basically some zinc some coq10 some selenium maybe some herbs happy days so yeah yeah. (laughs) so um are you for when couples are trying for a baby um to get the men on a like a, a prenatal like a a, a, a vitamin yes whilst they're trying yeah. I am big on the men taking prenatals as well so I see a lot of folate deficiency in men and folate is particularly important for uh, making DNA so um, really important that they are also meeting their micronutrient requirements so folic acid selenium zinc coq10 um, are kind of my top male uh, nutrients but yeah. Um, yeah, but there's more. It also depends on where the male's at. So if they have, say they're in an industry where they take on a really high toxic load, maybe they're yep. in the building industry or maybe they're a painter, um, I'll also do some light detox work as well with them um, depending on what their industry is. I also see a lot of cyclists. So 
there's often a conversation that needs to be had about wearing tight bike pants and yeah. you know being on the bicycle for long periods of time and perhaps they should work on their swimming for a period of time yeah. <laughs> instead of wow. running yeah. and cycling yeah yeah so yeah lots of things to work on um but yeah men are never forgotten they um certainly end up on supplementation as well and when you see people in the clinic um do you find sometimes it's easier to rather than get if you're saying it's tricky to get, um, you know, both the male and the female to come into the clinic, um, mm. do you sometimes do sort of like a Skype thing with a couple, like from the comfort of their home or do you do like video calls? Is that a possibility? Yeah. yeah. I mean, at the moment I'm a hundred percent online because yeah, exactly. so I guess <laughs> the perspective we're recording on, what date is that? Like the 11th of May or something. Yeah, I don't even know what date it is. Oh, it's the 12th no, of May. Do. Oh, 12th, there we go. I would have said, yeah, you're right, it's the 11th. I, I've got no <laughs> idea what day it is either. They all roll into one at the moment. So I am doing 100% video calls online at the moment. And interesting you say that, actually, because I, haven't, I hadn't actually thought about it, but I have been seeing a lot more men rock up to that video conference call um, for the consultation. And maybe that's because, I don't know, everyone's working from home and they have a bit more time flexibility as well. Yeah. But I definitely have been seeing more men um, via, uh, I use Zoom, so via Zoom. Yeah, um, well, yeah that's fantastic. So that's you good. make a good point. Yeah, no, I think sometimes comfort of your own home may play a part in it. Getting out the door and to the clinic can kind of seem a bit scary for some. I, I yeah. can totally appreciate I think, that. I think nutritionists also have a really bad reputation of like taking all the fun away and being like, no, you can't have caffeine and you can't drink alcohol and yeah. you have to eat gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, soy-free, you know. We, have, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, do, we do have a bad <laughs> reputation. <laughs> No, no, that's good. I think um, I think that's really important work you're doing. So with women, um, what can they be doing um, whilst they're trying for a baby? What are, what are some good things to introduce into your diet? Like I know when we talk about, you know, iron depletion um, in antenatal clinics, we speak about, you know, squeezing um, citrus foods on your meats and your green veggies, green leafy foods to sort of help absorb iron. Um, and that's sort of, but we're seeing them once they're pregnant. We're not seeing them when they're trying for a baby. So if you're trying for a baby, what are some things that you could be doing to sort of, you know, up nutrients and introduce new um, vitamins into your diet um, through food? You know, what are your tips? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to, yeah, based on the literature, um, what's really interesting about a fertility diet per se um, is that there are a few key factors that um, are associated with improved fertility and reduced time to conception. And I really want to emphasize people eating um, a lot of plant foods. So I want people to be eating their fruits and vegetables and also legumes. I feel like legumes are kind of a forgotten um, component of a lot of people's diets. We kind of think of protein as meat and chicken and fish and eggs and all that kind of stuff. But I, don't, I want people to start eating more legumes because in terms of research, they've. Uh, I think this one came from the NHS nurse um, two study, which is basically a retrospective study of a really large sample of women. And basically what they found was that women who substituted 5% of their dietary intake of animal protein for vegetable protein had a 50% reduced instance of ovulatory infertility. So basically 
They swapped a small proportion of their animal protein for plant-based proteins, e.g. legumes. Wow. Um, and they had a reduced instance of um, infertility, which is amazing. Like how that, easy. That is amazing. And such a simple change. Like you don't really have to do much. It's just swapping out meat for yeah. more veggies. Yeah. yeah, wow. And so what I tell my clients is to have a legume lunch. So okay. don't worry about like having chicken or eggs or red meat or whatever it is for your lunch. Mm. Make sure you have legumes for lunch. So have a beautiful green leafy salad with some uh, chickpeas or lentils and some beautiful goat's cheese and lots of herbs and things like that. Like how simple is that lunch? A, it doesn't yeah, really yum. need to be refrigerated. <laughs> yeah. It's really quick to make. Um, so, yeah, I talk to my clients about having legume lunches because that's basically that 5% swap. Um, to boost fertility. So yeah, that's one tip. The other thing for um, female fertility is making sure that you're having full fat dairy. So low fat dairy has been correlated um, with infertility. So we want to make sure that you're getting really um, good quality organic if possible, because obviously dairy has hormones in it. So cows that aren't milked on their natural milking cycle um, will have yeah, hormones basically. <laughs> Lots of wow. hormones in there. Well, because yeah. I had heard, and you know, um, everyone always has an opinion when you're trying for a baby and it's not happening, um, uh, that you know you should eliminate dairy altogether. You don't believe that to be the case? No, not the case for all women. Look, for some women, yes. So if women's if women have uh, heavy periods, um, endometriosis, acne, or signs of PMS, I will do a dairy elimination but in saying that some of these women can do really well on a2 protein as well yep. so a1 casein protein can be really inflammatory so if they are presenting with these inflammatory conditions like the endo or acne um, and heavy periods i will yeah swap them to purely a2 protein milk um, okay. And if we don't get results, then I will resort to a dairy elimination just to see whether we can um, get some results. But yeah, not all women have to go off dairy. That's um, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And dairy does offer lots of micronutrients. So, I mean, calcium being the most obvious one, but also vitamin D. Um, yeah, it is, it is a good source of nutrition and protein as well, particularly women who are eating more vegetarian or plant-based. If they, you know, aren't getting a lot of protein, um, dairy, I kind of favor fermented dairy because it does have that um, added benefit of being rich in probiotics. So things like yogurt and kefir and things like that, and also cheeses. Um, okay. Yeah, really good source of protein as well. Wow, interesting. Just back on eating more of a plant-based diet rather than, you know, um, having sort of predominantly meat with every one of your main meals throughout the day. Do you think that is because – like I'm not sure if on that NHS2 study um, they sort of had reasons behind it, but do you think it's because um, red meat is sort of high in saturated fats? Yeah, I think, uh, look, I think there's a few parts to it. I think it's also where you're sourcing your meat from. Like is your meat organic? Is it grass-fed? Obviously grass-fed meat is going to have higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids to omega-6 fatty acids. So omega-6 fatty acids being highly inflammatory and omega-3 fatty acids being more anti-inflammatory. 
So I think the okay. fats is one part of it as well. Um, but I also think the hormones in the meat particularly is a part of it. So that NHS study did find that the most significant impact on fertility was seen in chicken and turkey, then followed by red meat. So okay. that kind of, for me, that says that it's potentially um, hormones. hormones as well. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So because red meat, you know, you think of a cow, other than in America where they kind of do feedlot um, feeding, in yeah. Australia we've got plenty of green grass. A lot of the cows are grazing on grass to some extent and don't really need too much hormonal intervention. So mm. I do think there is a hormonal component of it. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So um, say you're, you've introduced a plant-based diet, you're taking your choline and your folic acid. You've spoken to your husband. He's done a, a sperm test. Um, from there, a, when people come and see you, do you do the bloods or do you write referrals and then they go off to a pathology clinic? Yeah, so um, there's lots of ways we can go about it. I can order pathology for people, but it's non-Medicare. So for some people, they're just like, write it up. I can't be bothered going back to my GP um i'll just get it all through you so that's one way of doing it but it, can, it does cost so you, you take bloods no i don't physically take the blood okay oh, sorry. okay <laughs> but, they, <laughs> God, no. but they they go to like a douglas henley moore or um a laboratory yeah. clinic to have the okay. blood drawn i just write the referral um okay. but then some people do have a really great relationship with their GP and I really encourage people if they do have a great GP that they like working with to go back and have the bloods done with them because A, they're way more qualified than me um, in terms of reading overall bloods. Like I'm definitely, well, definitely, I'm probably better at reading your nutritional bloods than your GP, but they're certainly better okay. at reading other blood markers than what I am. So if you've got a good relationship with yep. your GP, I really encourage people to include them in this process. I think one key thing is having that team of people to look after you. Yep. It's not just going to be one person that's going to fix all your problems. It's about having a great totally. GP. It might be having a great endocrinologist and also having your allied health team, whether it's acupuncture, nutrition, herbal medicine. So yeah, it's about having um, a team to support you. So yeah, I order okay. bloods, but um, I do encourage people to go through their GP as well, if possible. Perfect. And um, in regards to now say um, you've done all these things and you're pregnant, um, do you alter like jumping off a plant-based diet from then and reintroducing meat or do you think being plant-based throughout a pregnancy is ideal? What, what are your takes on yeah. um, sort of the movement towards eating more of a sort of vegan plant-based um, diet? So I think I should probably clear up when I say plant-based, I know plant-based is kind of code word for vegan at the moment, <laughs> but yeah, when it, I say, it is a bit. <laughs> yeah. So when I say plant-based, I mean like eating a lot of plants and making sure that you're getting your legumes and your nuts and seeds and your whole grains and things like that. But I'm not strictly like a hundred percent no animal. I've spoken about dairy yeah. and the benefits of dairy. I do quite like um, a steak around about once a fortnight. I do encourage okay. women to have 
uh, two to three serves of smaller species fish every week for their omega-3 fatty acids, okay. but also choline. Um, and then it's So also when you say smaller egg. species, sorry, when yeah. you say smaller species, what, what do you mean? I mean sardines, which most people are going to go, <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but also things like flathead or snapper, um, just not your marlins and your swordfish and your big tunas basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And that's primarily for the mercury. So we really don't yep. want to have elevated mercury levels in um, pregnancy because it's a neurotoxin. So, yeah, when I say plant-based, yep. I'm, I'm encouraging people to eat more plants, um, which is both sustainable but also beneficial for fertility and also pregnancy and infant outcomes. But I'm, mm-hmm. yeah, having a steak, having fish, a couple of times a week and also eating eggs and dairy is also really important. So yeah, I'm not strictly saying eat a vegan diet. So basically once you are pregnant, you can continue. <laughs> it's basically a Mediterranean diet dressed up as a plant-based diet. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Yum. My favorite type of eating. I think that's delicious. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so um, talking post, um, post babies, um, sorry, um, like post pregnancy. So you've had your little baby. Um, and you're breastfeeding, what are your takes on um, fasting? Because I had a couple of people write in about, Mm. you know, wanting to lose baby weight and doing the sort of that fasting from dinner to, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours past your last meal and breastfeeding. And I wanted to get your takes on that, whether you think, yeah, it's not an issue or no, I wouldn't be doing it. What do you think? Yeah, interesting. I don't actually know. I guess it would depend on the individual and, like you said, how long they're fasting for. I probably wouldn't encourage anything over sort of 13 or 14 hours. 13 or 14 hours is kind of like a normal fast. It's basically like having a long breakfast. A really good night's sleep. Yeah, Yeah. it's like a really good night's sleep. So (laughs) probably fine. But, you know, it depends on your milk supply as well. If you're really having issues with your milk supply, I would focus on, um, well, perhaps not focus on losing weight in the immediate future. Yeah, exactly. I know. Um, I was I was actually surprised at how many people had sort of um, had questions about weight loss after a baby. But yeah. I, I, I do get it, and but then, it's, you know. Yeah, and carbohydrate intake as well. I find when women cut out too many carbs, their milk supply can really start to dry up. So, I, I mean, I get it. I've had two babies. I still probably haven't lost all my um, baby weight and my daughter's five and a half now. But Me either. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of come to peace with my post-baby weight. But, you know, yeah. in, in defense, I think once you have a baby, there is a lot of pressure and there's a lot of like information yeah. out there and noise saying, oh, get your, get your, you know, pre-baby body back. But I, and comparison, you know, I think too, we're living in that sort of social media age where photos are splashed up constantly online and you kind of can't help but compare sometimes. So yeah. um, I, I, do, I do see why there is still that noise around the topic, yeah. but um, I just thought it was interesting to get your take on yeah, f- fasting. Um, fasting. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, going the other way though um, and talking about sort of lactation and milk supply, are there some foods that you recommend that women introduce into their diet sort of from the get-go um, to help with milk supply? Yeah, so, I mean, basically it's 
same diet as what preconception and pregnancy was. So a Mediterranean style diet that's abundant in healthy fats as well. So people often forget to eat their nuts and seeds. Well, a handful of mixed nuts and seeds every single day will give you your mineral requirement, but also boost healthy fats like vitamin E and omega-3 fatty acids. So yeah, when you are breastfeeding, it is really important to focus on omega-3 fatty acids. I quite often supplement women, well, I always supplement women with DHA and choline when breastfeeding as well um, to boost their, yeah, their DHA levels. So DHA just to give a bit of background, you have your omega-3 fatty acids. DHA inside the body is converted, uh, omega-3 is converted to DHA inside the body. And that's a a rate limiting um, process. So if you eat animal foods like fish and eggs, you're already getting DHA through your diet. But if you are eating predominantly plant-based, you really do need to supplement with a preformed DHA. So like an algae oil. Um, to make sure okay. that you are getting those high levels of DHA through your breast milk for bub. Um, okay. And what does DHA do for the baby just on a very basic level? Yeah. So is it good for the brain? Yeah, or? it's really important for brain and also for eye health. Um, okay. So visual acuity. So, yeah, really important um, in the third trimester to really load up with DHA because bub – um, accumulates, I think it's around 70 grams a day of DHA from mum in that last trimester. Wow, that's yeah. a stack. And that's why, it's super, okay. that's why it's super important that preterm babies are given a DHA fortified um, formula if they do end up on formula. Um, okay. Yeah, to make sure that they do get that DHA accumulation at the same rate as they would have in those last few weeks of um, pregnancy in utero. So, yeah, back to breastfeeding. So, yeah, making sure you're meeting all your uh, micronutrient requirements. You're going to have to supplement. The micronutrient requirements are way higher in breastfeeding, um, higher than what they are in um, pregnancy. So, yeah, a good prenatal supplement, DHA and choline, and then your Mediterranean-style diet as well. And then if if you are having significant supply issues um, with breast milk, I'm a big fan of herbal medicines. So my first port yep. of call will be the Waleda breastfeeding tea. So it has fenugreek okay. and caraway and a few other delicious herbs in them. Um, but failing that, although the tea does quite often work really well, I will then jump in with um, more herbal um, liquid herbs if I really need to boost milk supply for a mum. So, yeah, they're okay. kind of my top tips wow. for breastfeeding. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and then when people, you know, baby grows a little bit older and is now a rat bag toddler that um, – is choosing what they want to eat. Well, not choosing, but um, deciding that they don't want to eat a meal that you have prepared for them. Um, what are some of the tips? Like I know um, of there's some sort of like herby powders and um, vitamin powders that you can sort of disguise in kids' foods. But um, what do you, what like what's your take on what are some important things that kids should be eating? Like I can't get my two-year-old to eat meat. Okay. He just refuses. So uh, can you give a two-year-old a B12 supplement? Yes, you can. So, I mean, if, you can. yeah, but it is important to have their bloods measured. Although, you know, as a mom, I'm like, oh, there's no way my kids would have a needle. Um, <laughs> some kids, yeah. I do like to check their iron status, um, particularly okay. around 12 months of age, just to make sure that they aren't um, iron deficient at 
if, yeah. if you do have prolonged untreated iron deficiency, it can predispose you to a whole heap of cognitive um, and developmental issues um, if left untreated. Okay. But yeah, vitamin B12, same goes. So it's really important um, for cognitive function as well. And there can be severe neurological um, issues if it's left untreated and there is vitamin B12 deficiency. So, I mean, the first thing would probably be analyze the diet. I'd put it through my software. You might find that he, yeah. even though he's not eating red meat, he might be getting enough vitamin B12 through other things like milk and eggs and perhaps poultry. Um, and yep. if not, okay. yeah, you can absolutely supplement um, younger children. And I do with my vegan clients supplement them with um, activated B12. But I yeah, I had a, actually, I had a girlfriend who um, wrote in a question yesterday being like, um, you know, is food before one just for fun? And um, she's a vegan mm. and said, you know, I haven't given um, my little girl any um, meat or dairy products. Should I be? And if I'm not, what sort of food sources should I be reliant upon if I don't particularly want to introduce them into her diet? Yeah, and I think from six months, the most important thing is iron, um, like I was talking about a second ago. So with, yeah. with my starting solids people, I always say the the highest priority is iron-rich foods to start with. So yes, that's typically meats, but it can also be things like lentils. Lentils are really high in iron. You've just yeah. got to soak them and cook them properly to remove the phytic acid. So that phytic acid is an anti-nutrient that binds to iron and zinc actually and reduces the absorption. So they just have to be prepared properly. But this is where things like fortified rice cereal and I know a lot of people don't like fortified rice cereal but it does definitely play a, a really beneficial role in plant-based or vegan kids simply for their mineral iron. okay yeah um so yeah uh, food <laughs> food before 12 months is it just for fun no definitely not they do need it for micronutrients in particular um iron it would be the key yeah, one yeah because I I do think that sort of um term, you know, food before one, just for fun, is sort of thrown around a bit these days. And I, like, I definitely, um, living over in Hong Kong, I know, um, um, for the last 18 months when we were over there, that was a big thing on these WhatsApp groups where there are, you know, lots of mums and, you know, some mums, you know, everyone starts comparing what their kid's doing versus another kid. And, uh, I think the mums where their kids probably weren't as adventurous um, with foods initially uh, would sort of brush off, oh, well, it doesn't matter, I'll, I'll you know, up breastfeeding or up bottles yeah. um, to sort of, um, sort of counterbalance that sort of lack of interest in food. Yeah. But you do think it, it's very important. Oh, it's so important. And breast milk's a really poor source of iron as well. So I really want to emphasize that iron for exclusively breastfed infants. It's going to be less of an issue for formula fed babies. But in saying that uh, milk or high milk consumption is correlated uh, with iron deficiency anemia. And what I do see is okay. later on around the age two or three, where these fussy eaters really rely heavily on their formula or their milk to fill them up. Um, and yeah. they are fussy for other foods as well. So, you know, after 12 months, it is, they don't need to drink formula and they don't need to have um, milk as a drink. Uh, they can meet their yeah. requirements through whole foods. Um, but it is important to get that balance right. So, yeah. It's um, it's fascinating. Very, so many things, like it's so multifactorial. There's so many components of it that we could talk about. Um, but back yeah. to your son, was it your son or your daughter? 
Yeah, no, my little boy Sid. He yeah. um he he's a he's a bit of a fussy eater. He's getting better, but um just basically from sixteen months on, wouldn't touch meat. And he smells all his his foods bizarrely. Mm. So there he'll are sniff some it and then that are super senses. So there's like a small proportion of the population that literally have a heightened sense of smell and taste. Um, so it could be that, but I also find um, a lot of my fussy eaters, funnily enough, uh, when you correct the iron deficiency and the zinc deficiency, because they often uh, occur concurrently because they're found in similar foods, the zinc deficiency in particular yep. when it's corrected really improves their appetite. So zinc's really important for digestive enzymes. It's important for the maintenance of your taste buds on your tongue as well. So I find a lot of my fussy okay. eaters, once we correct this iron deficiency and zinc deficiency, the fussy eating kind of resolves. But it's like a vicious cycle. How do you get a fussy eater to eat zinc and iron-rich foods when they don't like red meat? And that's kind of where supplementation can come in and kind of, you know, yeah. break, break that vicious cycle, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Oh, well, I'm definitely going to get his bloods um, mm. assessed, I reckon. He, I think, might need a little bit of investigating. Maybe when the plan is for us to end up down in Sydney. So maybe when we're down in Sydney, we'll come and visit you, Brittany. Yeah, I'd love to see um, you guys. <laughs> um, this has been fantastic. Thank you. You're a wealth of knowledge. Um, we've loved speaking to you today. Yeah, totally fine. Thank you so much for having me, Rosie. That was Brittany Darling from Whole Food Healing. Brittany has a vitamin line for children launching in July of this year. It's called I'm Nutrients. You can find it at imnutrients.com. It's remedies for the logies of childhood. Thanks for listening.